This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Bring podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Bring magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest is joining me today remotely from Chicago, Adam Slack, co-founder and head brewer for Maplewood Brewing in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. You've been on our radar for a number of years. We did a breakout brewer story on Maplewood a few years ago. And uh, along with that, for Craft Beer and Brewing magazine readers, you can uh, access the Son of Juice homebrew scaled recipe that you guys provided along with that story. Um, over the years, we've also reviewed quite a few uh, Maplewood beers, and you can go check out those reviews on beerandbrewing.com. Um, I do recall a certain pale American Pale Ale charlatan that scored a 96 from the blind judges at Craft Beer and Brewing. And of course, you've won a couple of GABF medals for that same uh, charlatan APA, as well as a, a GABF medal for Fat Pug, your oatmeal stout. Yeah, that's, uh, those are actually the first two beers we commercially released, oddly enough, but Charlatan is definitely, that's our baby. That's our, yeah. you know, it's as classic as can be. It, it's our homage to, uh, I don't know, just all the great American pails that came out in the early days of craft brewing. Um, Sierra Nevada obviously comes to mind, but sure, you know, it's, uh, it's classic and it's good. And I feel like it's one of those ones that have enough hops where kind of hoppy hop heads can drink it regular sure. folks who may not be into super hoppy beers can drink it it's good it's just balanced you know well I, let's talk a little bit about that a little uh, a little later on i'd love to kind of you know follow this arc from these classics that you do like uh like fat pug oatmeal stout and charlotte apa and of course your lager program and then you span all the way into uh, the <laughs> hippest of current styles with uh, everything from pastry stouts to, uh, you know, hazy fruited IPAs. Yeah, we've got like. a blue raspberry sour coming out next week or yeah, in a couple yeah. of weeks rather. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a it's pretty big dichotomy. For sure. <laughs> we'll, yeah. uh, we'll kind of follow that spectrum along and uh, and see where we go. But first, G&D Chillers, born in the Pacific Northwest from a lot of hard work and a singular goal. They've become the best damn chiller company in the world. Like you, G&D never settles. They are relentless and strive to be better every single day because they take pride in the work they do. They're craftsmen who know that good enough just won't cut it. Visit G&D Chillers at the CBC booth 3011 or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet refined sugars. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder N Pure Seltzer Nutrient or call BSG at 1-800-374-2739. I just have to say, I love 
that we've got CBC booth numbers now in uh, in our sponsor reads because that means it's happening in person. And oh my God, I can't wait to get back to that. It was a, a weird week this past week because uh, you know we were in Denver for our very first live event, our Brewery Accelerator event, and uh, our ninth Brewery Accelerator event here in Denver. But it was also kind of a sad week because it was the end of an era for Falling Rock Tap House after 24 years. And I do wow. just want to say out here to, you know, that uh, thank you to the Blacks and to Falling Rock for all they've contributed to craft beer. Um, if you want to go listen, I did talk to Chris on the podcast a couple years ago, and we had a spirited conversation about that. But uh, I did get over there on Wednesday, right as they reopened for the last week. And, uh, you know, it was fun to see everybody. I wish we were all under better circumstances. But uh, but a lot of folks came in for that, and it was great to, to pay our respects to their contribution to craft beer. Having said that, Adam, let's talk about Maple and let's talk about you all. Give me a, a you know quick history of your brewing history and, of course, how Maplewood came to be. Okay. Well, uh, I started, geez, a long time ago, I think. And I mean, we started as a home brewer, like like a, a lot of people, you know, just sure, sure. Started, started with a hobby, um, fell in love with it, uh, just kept doing it, kept doing it, maybe... I think 2005 ish is when, when it started homebrewing. And, um, it was one of those things that, uh, you know, almost 10 years later was still homebrewing. And over that span of, of time, just became obsessed with it. Essentially. Um, I was at a different job industry that I wasn't necessarily, just happy doing it and sure um have no kids no anything at the time and we you know my wife and i we were we were talking about i had been talking about wanting to open something for for a really long time and my business partner ari was in a similar uh situation where the timing was really good to to go for it um and we just decided to go for it in 2014 um, and we opened first beers went out, I think toward the end of that year in September. So really our first full year of production was in 2015, but, um, my background is homebrewing. And I mean, before that I was in engineering and all sorts of science-based stuff. So, um, when we started getting to the point where we knew we were going to open a brewery, which was a few years before 2014, um, started taking even more so of a, a really disciplined approach for it, uh, may or may not have acquired Siebel, you know, books and all that stuff that you can get if you, you actually go to a, a brewing school or, you know, work with, with other trained brewers, but we had enough friends in the industry and enough resources to really buckle down and, and start planning things to you know, to talk to me about own. that. Sure. Sure. Talk to me about that original idea for Maplewood. You know, now you're even in 2014, 2015, there was still a lot of breweries and definitely even more coming, you know, it was easy to see that at the time, even though I guess we all still thought, Oh, the plateau must be coming. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. but, but even in Chicago and in Chicago now is an incredibly dense market. Uh, you know, with, I think over 150 breweries just in the Metro Chicago area. Um, you know, thinking about how you add something to that community of brewing, uh, had to you know present some 
you know, particular pressure. There's something about serving a neighborhood certainly there, but uh, how did you guys conceive of the beer that you're going to brew and what you wanted to be known for? So, yeah, the Chicago landscape, like you said, was, I mean, we, there was a fair amount of breweries then, not like there, I mean, now it's got to be triple the amount as compared to, to then, but, um, we wanted to open a brewery and distillery, which we did. Uh, we were the first in Illinois, one of the first few in the country to have, I guess, both in one space. Um, and we wanted to be able to present to folks uh, both beer and spirits made from similar or the same exact grain, um, do barrel aging in our own barrels in-house and offer kind of a unique experience in that sense. And that was the initial kind of angle plan we wanted to go after. Distilling with no professional distilling experience behind that has to be a particularly well, intimidating uh, thing to tackle. I, can't, I mean, legally, I can't say we, we distilled before then, but uh, <laughs> there may, may or may not have been distilling going on during the, the home brewing sessions which are very much legal so if distilling happened to happen it may have happened but sure you you were distilling ingredients that may not have produced alcohol but certainly gave you the experience distilling okay yeah i see where you're going with that um (laughs) uh you know because distilling you know in my mind adds a whole additional level of danger you know to the the production process and and um you know not that brewing is not dangerous. It can be very dangerous in various things, but uh, the number of, uh, you know, once you add distilling into that mix, things get even more combustible than they already are. Combustible explosive vapors. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. It was interesting. I mean, part of, I, you know, now seeing, seeing where we're at now and everything you kind of learn as you go. Um, would I have done the exact same thing? Maybe, maybe not. But it's it's one of those things where that was our de- idea, and we we're gonna we we're gonna figure it out and make it happen. And um, yeah, it was tough. I mean, <laughs> you definitely sure. gotta be able to um, <clears throat> learn quickly and figure things out. And you know, we didn't have a massive budget to start with. We were, you know, way underfunded for what we probably should have had. But hey, that's how you. That's how you learn um, or, I mean, sink or swim type of thing. We, we wanted to do it. So we were just hell bent on figuring it out. Yeah. So talk to me about the business model, uh, taproom focus, uh, production focus, food. You know, how did you guys um, think about the hospitality experience that you're going to provide? So we took us, we, we were kind of production focus from the start just because it took us a long time to get the permits and everything needed to open the tap room. Um, Chicago can sometimes take a while with that stuff and it did, but um, we obviously we wanted to have the tap room open as soon as we could and serve what we could outside the tap room and go with distribution for the rest. Um, and as things turned out, like I said, it took, I don't know, a year and a half, almost two full years to get the tap room fully up and running. So wow. we had to focus on distribution um, right from the get go, which honestly, it was, you know, you lose those margin points on, on using a dis- distributor right off the bat, but it definitely 
helped us get a really good leg up on developing account relationships, distributor relationships. And so when it came time to, I mean, scale up production even more, um, we had some, some experience under our belt and were able to go from 10, 20 barrel batches to using some contract partners and do 200, 400 barrel batches and actually, actually have a distribution network kind of in place to support that. Um, so it just worked out that way, you know, had, had we had a, were we able to open the tap room sooner? Absolutely. I mean, because yeah, that tap rooms are great. That's the lifeblood of a kind of a small brewery getting everything going. Um, but it's one of those things we just had to figure out another way because ours was taken forever. Sure. So sure. How much beer do you all produce uh, in a given year this year? Say. So we actually grew last year, which is kind of crazy. Um, thanks to everyone in Chicago, well, everywhere who who supported us over the whole pandemic. Um, we had crazy weeks in the tap room for to go, you know, on premise consumption wasn't open, but we had our, our tap room open just for to go right. stuff. And we had weeks there where we were blowing out of the water, like last summer's numbers, just in volume. So people were, sure. people were eager to take stuff home and it was awesome. Um, and we just had to make a lot more beer. So we, we finished last year, I think around 16,500, 60,500, somewhere wow. around there, maybe a little more. You guys are um, solidly into regional brewery territory now. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Huh. We, we had some pretty good growth over the last few yeah. years and, you know, credit our, our sales team and our marketing teams. And, right. um, I think our, our whole, I don't know, I, we, we have a sure. really good team here who, who's able to keep us, keep us out there and in, in, in the stores, which is pretty awesome. Well, last year was the year to, to have beer out in general distribution and, and selling it through distributors with that kind of, you know, production model. Also, you know, the, the distributors, everyone that I've talked to had good years last year. And so, you know, it just goes to show this, you know, effects of the pandemic were not distributed evenly. Um, you know, right. they are, and they, and even within that, you know, within categories of breweries that were impacted most, um, it's hard to find hard and fast rules around that. Some, even with larger distribution, still suffered through that. And, you know, others found some silver linings in there. And so um, we'll continue to just recover and unpack and, and and think about those things. Certainly those with primarily hospitality-based models, especially the beer bars out there, have uh, suffered in some of the worst possible ways. But Yeah, it was, it was definitely, like you said, like there's so many of our accounts and, and bars that we love to go to just seeing them struggle or yeah. close down entirely. It was, a it was not, not a great year for, for that, obviously. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's pivot and talk about some of the beers that you brew. But, uh, before we do that, the most common complaint about hard seltzers, they need more flavor. Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent and can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there is a better way. The craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugars, just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, for years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. 
In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on BreweryDB.com. In just a few weeks, BreweryDB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail to take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and increase your taproom traffic. Set up your account on MarketMyBrewery.com. That's MarketMyBrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So Adam, as you guys launched Maplewood, uh, you know, clearly you love the classics and you have some of these kind of, you know, core classic beers. Uh, talk to me about how you envisioned this beer program for Maplewood and then maybe walk me through, uh, you know, how some of that uh, started to shift as your consumers told you what they wanted from you. Yeah, I mean, we we started the problem with us out is that we kind of celebrate all sorts of different styles of beer. Um that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to focus on any one particular style or, or whatever lane as it is. Um, sure. Sure. And there's so many different people out there who have obviously wide range of styles. Um, just like, you know, our, our personal tastes are all over the place. Um, so we wanted to get really, good at brewing all sorts of stuff you know whether it's lagers traditional lagers american pales um you know transitioning and bringing in some more modern hazies or ipas or these fruited sours and we have we also have a, a fruiter program which is now uh finally really coming into its own you know that took a, a while to get all the cultures in there and each fooder built up and Justin, just in time for nobody to buy that beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's kind of how it is, especially in Chicago. We need some mixed, mixed fermentation. Fooder beer yeah. is definitely a labor of love yep. Brewer, yep. beer. The brewers hey, make for themselves and a few people it. that also can appreciate it. That's it. But you know, so we wanted to get really good at, at different styles. And, um, because we have a diverse production team, um, as far as tastes go, we, kind of all brought different things to the table and learned from each other and um, really gave different styles the respect they deserve, you know, for a lager or whatever, you know, we just did a Dortmunder, you know, paying attention to, you know, the nuances that really make a, a really good Dortmunder versus a, uh, a hazy IPA where we want the hops to be just pouring out of the, the can, the glass, whatever it is, you know, and, and kind of going, uh, overboard with stuff. But, um, yeah, we just wanted, like I said, we wanted to focus on everything, which is not really a focus. It's just kind of a, a catch all, <laughs> right. but our whole model from day one has been, you know, if we're going to put out something, we want to do it right and do it well, whether it's new school and over the top crazy, you know, like a pastry stout or whatever, or if it's as classic as a Pilsner, you know, German Pilsner or something like that. Um, we wanted to do it well. And we put in a lot of effort into tweaking our processes for different styles. Um, we are hell bent on paying attention to water profiles um, for different styles. Every single beer has a different water profile tailored to what we're trying to achieve. And I, I think just, I don't know, just paying attention to details like those really can help uh, beers stand out in a crowded marketplace because at, at the end, there's a lot of good breweries out there and it's subtle differences that just 
maybe add a little more depth to your beer or a little more hop aroma or whatever it is that will help, you know, your stand out. So it's always on our mind. What can we do to make whatever style it is better and, and do it well? And that's it. That, that's our, our philosophy as it is. Sure, sure. Well, I appreciate that you, you know, apply that to accessible styles for everyday craft beer drinkers with, you know, things like your oatmeal stout or uh, the Charleston APA. Let's talk about that American pale ale because, um, you know, clearly it has been a winner for you all both, you know, with consumers and certainly with, you know, judges of various sorts. Um, you know, getting into the pale ale space is an intimidating one because there's this one brewery out there that seems to do a almost, well, I would say almost a perfect job with it, um, mm -hmm. and delivers over and over again. Um, you know, Sierra Nevada pale ale is certainly the American standard for that beer and one that, uh, you know, brewers of all stripes will, you know, drink and enjoy no matter what the circumstance. In fact, uh, I had one last Wednesday at Falling Rock because uh, uh, ordered awesome. for me, ordered for me by a, a certain brewer. And, you know, it just felt like one of that, that one beer that we should definitely drink at, uh, at Falling Rock you know, um, in that kind of place in that kind of time, just to, you know, because it's such a classic. So you get into this market and you're going to make an American pale ale. Well, how do you set yourself apart in this kind of space? And, uh, you know, talk me through some of the, you know, like the idea behind building a recipe for that. Okay. Well, Sierra Nevada, like you said, that's, I mean, that's perfect. That's you, you, we're not, we're not going for that, uh, aromatic profile, you know, there's, there's has a little bit more of a, a malt character and different hops, um, than we'll use in Charlatan. So in our market, we wanted to have something that was inspired a little bit by the West coast IPAs, um, slightly drier finish, a uh, little, little bit more bitterness to it. Although Charlatan is not a bitter beer by any means, but it's probably toward the higher end of the spectrum for American pales mm -hmm. um, and have a really clean, bright hop aromatic to it in flavor with, with some malt to balance that out. So I guess, uh, yeah, I guess in, I should also mention in Chicago where you are, there's also this other pale ale that's, yeah. uh, you know, was one of this kind of pioneering citra beers, I believe that, uh, you know, with half acre daisy cutter, you uh -huh. know, and so you are, you know, also positioning, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a, is a different, uh, you know, beer compared to that, that definitely takes a more new school approach and, uh, you were angling for something a little bit more classic, but also not the Sierra Nevada classic. We love Daisy Cutter. And I mean, I'd be lying if that wasn't on, on our mind when we were sure. developing Charlatan. We wanted, we saw we saw a lot of Daisy Cutter handles out there and, and we're like- It's fantastic hey, there's, beer. There's, there's, it's a great beer. And we're, in our mind, there's room for two American Pales sure. in the city. So we wanted to come up with one that was, I don't know, that could, could compete with that really. And- um, uses a blend of kind of classic modern and new school hops, citrus, Centennial, and Simcoe. Um, and, and that was it. That was the game plan. Uh, we tried several different yeasts in there, um, settled on uh, San Diego Super to help it attenuate more. So you get this really nice dry finish, um, accentuates or I should say doesn't accentuate, but leaves room for the aromatics. You know, it's super clean um, for the home brewers out there. If you haven't used San Diego Super, an IPA or a pale and you're using Chico or something like that, give it a give it a try. It's it's 
phenomenal. It's just, in my opinion, I like the extra attenuation you get. Um, other than that, it's where do, really where does clean. It, where do you try to finish with that one? Uh, for charlatan? Yeah. Or in the mid twos, you know, mid okay. to low twos. Um, leave somebody in there to it's as far as American pails go, it, I think it's on the, the higher end of the ABV spectrum. So we're at six one. So I forget what their style guides are at, but I know that's just like toward the higher end of it, but we wanted some, somebody in there and some, you know, roundness to just balance that slight increase in alcohol and the hop load. We're actually dry hopping that at a rate that's probably closer to IPAs, you know, not, not really up to, to that pounds per barrelage, but, um, getting there. So you, I don't know. I, I love beers when you open the can and you just smell it before you even lift it yeah. to your, your nose. And that's what we tried to achieve with charlatan, but also, you know, being crushable, really drinkable, um, finishes clean goes well with a ton of food um stuff like that yeah um how do you build a malt base uh you know out of that one it's just straight two well, row or uh, do you uh you, what else do you sprinkle in there we used to use two row as the base um we switched that to a pilsner base um a few years ago um just because we were using so much pilsner malt and it made are frankly made our ordering process easier. And sure. if anything, um, the two row versus the pills Pilsner, there wasn't a whole lot of difference from their contributions. Our, uh, our specialty malt in Charlatan is, uh, just a touch of Munich and a touch of, uh, English style crystal, but very light. So those were yeah. doing the, uh, I guess the heavy lifting as far as providing some, some malt to the beer and switching to pills and they're kind of let those malts come through a little bit more um, and let the hops come through a little bit more, but it's primarily, you know, base malt, uh, raw Pilsner. And then we just have small percentages of crystal uh, Munich a touch of white wheat, like 3%. I love white wheat and hoppy beers. I don't know what it is. I feel like it's almost Even like... Even 3%. Yeah, I feel like it's like salt or something. You know, it's not yeah. salty, but it just... It kind of brings everything together. It has this weird property, in my opinion, that uh, it just lets everything... It brings it all together. I don't know if it smooths everything out or what it is, but... To me, it's an, it's a definitely a different beer without that small percentage of wheat in there, and then just some dextrin for some extra little bit of body, and and that's it. That's the recipe. Yeah. Um, you mentioned water is an important component on this one. How um, how do you uh, you know adjust your water for pale ale in order to uh, you know to help uh, you know put the fine points on it? So we use Chicago water is actually pretty good foundationally except for the chlorine in it so um obviously that's that's horrible yeah. for for beer and hops so we, we get rid of all that we filter everything um as far as that goes but the minerals in chicago water are pretty pretty balanced and you can go at a lot of different style water profiles based on that so we use a fair amount of gypsum 
um, touch of calcium chloride, but definitely higher on the gypsum side and make a profile that's uh, higher in the sulfates to really help the hops pop, really make the bitterness be clean, crisp. And as you increase the sulfate content, you kind of get those effects. Um, So that, that was the profile. There's not a whole lot other than gypsum and little calcium chloride to to the levels we want them to be. Um, fortunately, like I said, Chicago has a good foundational base to add stuff to. Um, and despite everything else going on in Chicago, they have always up-to-date water reports, and it's it allows making water adjustments easier and reliable. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, nice. that's great. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, let's talk about hops for a little bit. Uh, you know, you mentioned that you use kind of you th- three core hops in that, um, you know, talk to me about the hopping technique. Um, you know, how you balance, you know, hot side versus, you know, uh, potentially any kind of dry hopping you might do to that to help push some of that aromatic, uh, components. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's walk into that for a little bit. So we did, we did want to get some more quote unquote flavor hop flavor in this one so we do have some staged additions toward the end of the boil um at what is it anymore 10 minutes and then we used to have a 30 minute addition but we got rid of that because it was such a small amount it was not really adding a whole lot to the beer so we pushed that into the 10 minute edition then we have a whirlpool edition um we're really really big fans of late hot editions. So, um, you know, like 205, something like that. We find that we get uh, a good amount of bitterness, a nice bitterness from those additions, but also get the dual effect of getting a lot of flavor into the beer from the hops and retaining a lot of aromatic properties since it's not ripping boiling anymore. And we'll just chuck in the hops and start crashing it you know, through the, through the chill right away. So still hot enough to get some isomerization, but, um, but still yeah, kind absolutely. of a softer bitterness yeah, from absolutely. it. And we get, I mean, our utilization isn't, isn't as high as with those additions, obviously, but, um, it's a nice balance between flavor and aromatics. Um, anymore, most of our hoppy beers, we tend to, even the kind of classic styles and West coast styles will generally not add a whole lot of hops you know later than i guess or sooner than with 30 30 minutes left in the boil that's when we'll start messing with hops usually but typically 15 minutes and and less is where we we'd like to do a lot of our hoppings and um it works well. What's, uh, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're brewing on a, you know, decent sized system. And of course, you know, we, we talk about, you know, whirlpooling times and whatnot, but it's so dependent on, uh, you know, the speed at which things can cool down. Yeah. And a lot of yeah. that is, you know, is, is determined by the size of that kettle. So, you know, for you, how quickly, uh, you know, does that start to drop temperature and, uh, and then, um, you know, so how, so, how long are, as soon as the boil's done, we'll we'll start spinning it, um, and it we can get it down to like I said, two hundred five or so within ten minutes. We'll usually spin it for them, you know, and then we'll add the hops right then. Give it about ten minutes just to stand and and 
form a, a nice cake on the bottom so we don't gum up the, the chiller. And then we'll start knocking out. And by the end of the knockout, the beer is probably in the high 190s. But um, you mentioned isomerization. You know, all that decreases pretty quickly as temperature goes down. Um, so if you're, if you get five degree difference, 200, 205, you're going to get a lot of different, I guess, characteristics out of the beer. We were worried initially that adding the hops, exactly what you said, because it takes an hour to knock out 45 minutes to transfer the beer over. And when we're done, we're like, oh shit, is this going to be super bitter? Cause the beer is right. still, or the wort's still pretty hot, but it drops off pretty quickly. So yeah, you are getting some more, some IBUs, but it's it's so minimal that we just compensate by, I mean, that was one of the reasons instead of doing a 30 minute edition, we just moved it closer to the end and you get a little less bitterness on the hot side and then you just make up for that in, in the whirlpool. Sure, sure. No, and I, I mean, I love that it happens. And uh, when I was talking to Andy from Great Notion uh, on an episode uh, a couple years ago, he was mentioning that they, I mean, that's how they dial in their IBU goals. You know, the temperature that they are whirlpooling at will impact the the mm-hmm. ultimate expression of bitterness in the beer. And if they want it to be more bitter, they <laughs> just keep the temperature up. And it's such an interesting and weird way now that, uh, you know, to think about brewers, uh, you know, adjusting these kinds of parameters. Uh, um, and you know, for, right when, there, I mean, you yeah. mentioned, I was going to say, you mentioned that that's right when we were getting going the first, until we really, really learned the system. Um, we would like mess with hop timings, you know, like five minute increments here and there. And I think we have a good, we know our utilization right at Whirlpool out, right? Right when, you know, the boil or the steam is turned off, we know it with at 205. Some beers we used to spin the work down and get it into like the one eighties to really try to get no bitterness. And we, we, I guess what I'm saying is uh, we learn the temperatures and how much our system pulls out bitterness versus flavor. And we seem to have really good luck at starting at 205. And that's just amount, just the right amount of time in there to get, I don't know, about 7% utilization out of the hops for IBU wise, but keep a lot of the aromas and flavors in there without just essentially driving them off from being too hot. Sure, sure. I want to talk about uh, the quality of that bitterness. But first, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, there's nothing easy about brewing beer. It's an intricate, time-consuming art. The last thing you need to face is a recall or contamination that can hurt your pride and your pocketbook. Clarion lubricants meet strict purity and performance standards to help make your system 100% food safe. That's protection for your equipment and your beer. So make the switch to Clarion and ensure your system is running smooth and safe. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So Adam, talk to me about, you know, how you, um, number one, set up, uh, you know, are, are you 
uh, you know, staging witch hops going, you know, at these varying times. Um, and, you know, is there some quality to that kind of bitterness that comes from this later whirlpool hopping versus say, you know, earlier in that boil? Well, I feel like, um, when we want real sustained bitterness for like a West coast style, I love warrior and we'll use that as that's pretty much other. If we're doing a traditional lager, we'll use, you know, German hops or whatever it is throughout the whole process. But, um, for everything else, we'll use warrior to actually get IBUs and that, that will be the only type of earlier quote unquote bittering addition we'll typically do in any of the beers. Um, the what is it about warrior that you really like? It has one, it's potent Two, it's got a low cohumulone. It it just results in a really smooth, pleasant bitterness as compared to some other hops, um, in our opinion. And I know there's been, I think the, was the one that came out a a year or so ago. Pato was the the new high alpha hop that they're pushing, um, for being kind of like a warrior replacement. Um, cause it, it is stronger in alphas, but I don't know. It didn't, it, it wasn't the same warrior warriors are our bittering hop of choice. It's great. <laughs> it's yeah. smooth. Um, and it, and it delivers a fair amount of alphas in there. Um, as far as anything later on, um, we try not to boil, uh, maybe harsher bittering hops as long, which is why we, we, tend to add those so late because they're really not getting thoroughly boiled at that point. You know, even if it's in there for 10 minutes, you're not really, you're not ripping it for 90. Usually our, our entire boil process is 90 minutes and all those hops toward the end are mostly geared toward one, just touching up bitterness slightly. Um, and two, the main, mainly getting aromas and flavor into the beer um, so anything, I guess, any hops that we want to add to get bitterness in there will, will be of the warrior kind of yeah, style sure, where, sure. where it results in nice bitterness and it's really predictable. Um, and all the other en- ending hops are more for, I guess, other, other properties that we're trying to get at, not really bitterness. They do add some, but it's percentage wise, we're talking I don't know. Right. It, it's it's so low compared to the what the warriors bringing. That let's uh, talk, yeah, let's talk about that aroma component then. You know, obviously when you start adding them into the hot side, you know, you're you've got heat that all of those aromatic components can volatize, and you know, the moment you start adding them in is the moment that they start blowing off and you start losing them. Um, you know, from your perspective, you know, are there some adjustments that you all have made to try to keep more of that aroma into the beer so that it expresses when people open it rather than, uh, um, you know, popping out in your production process. Yeah. So originally we would, um, we would whirlpool and kind of check the hops in right, right. As we started, we, we tried a lot of like five minute additions, stuff like that. We moved them as I mentioned, just to knock off that boil about five, five, six, seven degrees. And, um, that helped out a lot, obviously. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see how much five degrees really does affect the final product. Um, Hmm. so really 
starting our Whirlpool editions in that 205 range has been huge. We were spinning the, well, the wort um, at that point. So the hops kind of get sucked right down into there. We don't let them float on the top, um, kind of get everything we can to dissolve into that wort. And you're going to lose some. It's just the nature of how it goes. But sure. Um, really the biggest, the biggest thing was, was not chucking our, you know, aroma hops in at really 205 is, was kind of like the magic temperature right around there. 206 is fine too, but you know, that, that was the biggest, uh, I guess, I don't know what you want to call it. Realization that, that (laughs) we had on our particular system, um, we keep once the hops go in all the the manways and stuff the top doors are closed keep everything if it does condense and fall back into the beer it's better than blowing out the stack sure sure and then we just start knocking out right away um and trying to get that right to pitching temperatures as fast as possible yeah um on the cold side do you dry hop um you, you know and if you do what is uh what does that kind of process look like for you well, we went through, yeah, we do. And you're not biotransforming and, these, right? This is classic West Coast. You're this not. This is, uh, yeah, right. So this is, we used to, um, when we started Charlatan, we would um, kind of do a, a Vinny Serlerzo double dry hop stage, you know, West Coast. Uh, we went through a lot of different methods for trying to get the most aroma and into the beer from the dry hops. Yeah. And um, we settled on pretty much the day it hits terminal is when for Charlatan we'll do a nice heavier load dry hop and then we'll let it sit for only about a day and then crash it. So it's usually pretty much all of our dry hops as soon as they're added for the main dosing for the for the hazies we'll do stage additions to get some biotransformation in there. Yeah, but when the main load of dry hops gets added we like to get it cold within a day pretty much um we found that letting it sit and there's different theories on this everyone has their own methods but we found that the sooner we get the beer cold and it doesn't take as long as you know a lot of folks like letting their sit hot hops sit warm for you know two three days and then they might step it down or do something we've tried all that and just for for our money's worth getting that beer cold after the hops has been well dry hopped within 24 hours works out very very well for creating sustained aromatics that really last through packaging and all that stuff so you're cooling the tanks down are you dropping hops out of there also at the same time or you know talk to me what does that process look like so for charlatan we'll we'll get the hops in there um like i said let them sit a day then we'll crash it down to 32 33 um charlatan we like to get nice and cold because we want it to end up as bright as possible and really drop kind of everything out of there um so we'll give it a good dump out of the bottom of the cone transfer to the bright tank and onward it goes um for the hazies we like doing a biotransformation addition which is typically at fermentation temperatures, which is right around 68, 69, right. depending on the beer. Um, and that will be a much smaller dose than um, 
kind of the, the big dry hop load. And then once the beer is done fermenting, we'll do a very large dry hop addition. Again, let it sit on there for about a day. Um, oh, I, I, let me back up. In, in the middle of those two additions, uh, usually we'll step down the tank to about 60 to knock down some of those first biotransforming hops, try to get yeah. all the yeast to flock out so they're not sticking to any of the hops in there. Um, and then we'll do the bigger addition. And then it continues on like Charlatan where we'll knock it down, except for we'll only crash any of our hazies usually to 36, 37. And we found that really helps um, throughout the whole process, just creating sustained aromatics and really stable haze and, you know, everything kind of you want in a hazy, <laughs> you know, you sure, want that sure. nice, thick, thick body and, and haze and, you know, saturated hops. And we see that if we go too cold with those, sometimes you could run into issues. Yeah. Yeah. When you're, uh, you know, packaging hoppy beers, um, you know, are there any other additional concerns that, you, you know, you've, you've pushed through on that production side? Cause you, you clearly packaging a lot of those beers, mm-hmm. um, you know, in order to kind of maintain that, that aromatic component and, uh, make sure that those beers pop out of the can. Yeah, we are, we are obsessed and crazy with purging. Um, yeah. we purge the living hell out of our tanks, our lines, everything. Um, it doesn't take a lot of oxygen to ruin a hazy beer. Um, one of my pet peeves is getting, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot. And I, I wish it was more of a focus for some places, just a small amount of oxygen. Well, it's like, why, what's the point of using all these hops if they're going to taste sweet and like they're gone, you know, it just that, that slight bit of oxygen will kill right. a hoppy beer. So we are crazy obsessed with that. Um, we don't have the fanciest of canning lines, but we really spent a lot of time working it out. And our DO numbers for honestly a canning line that you know it's it's not fancy, but we're getting on our hazies. We're usually in the 30s parts per billion, yeah. which is right up there with any of kind of the best lines that you can get um, sure, for, sure. for total package oxygen. And we're really proud of that. We, we spent a lot of time figuring out how to do that on this system. And we won't, every single packaging run, we won't package a beer unless it's um, pretty much 50 parts per billion is our top end, but um, that's rare. You know, everything is, is pretty much under 40, 30 to 40 and we won't go, I mean, we won't put it in the can if we can't figure it out. If it, And if we can't get it that low, then we know something, something has gone awry or is something up with the canner. There's a leak in one of the lines somewhere, who knows? Um, but we'll figure it out before it goes into the can, because if you're going to spend 16, 17 bucks on a four pack of, of hoppy beer, it better damn well be popping out of that can when you open it you know there's nothing worse than going trying to hazy and it's like you know you could tell right off the bat the color is a little off the aroma is just a little muted you taste it tastes a little sweet a little kind of cardboardy and cheesy it's like oh shit man just get your do's right the 
coolest thing. I, I love watching social media where brewers start posting their DO meter readings, um, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, because, yeah. you know, it's a badge of pride for, uh, you know, for fellow brewers to say, ah, oh, you know, that's where we got it. Um, you know, obviously to get that into total package auction, your, your bright tanks have to be much lower than that. Um, you know, which is of course that, uh, that process of getting everything down. And then, you know, at every, every point where, you know, from pumps to hoses to whatnot, like there's every single, you know, element between that bright tank and that canning line can also <laughs> screw you up. Yeah. And add more and into I will, that. I'll say, you know, some people don't believe how much a, a you, you put on a tri-clamp you know for whatever the line you're going to run to your canner or transfer hose or whatever and honestly you tighten by hand get a little screwdriver get it in there or just to, like just that extra amount of tightness could really have an effect you you might be sucking in just the smallest amount of oxygen in there but over a whole transfer you know, it's not leaking out beer so that the lines look like they're connected, but they're just not tightened down enough. And something as stupid as that could really have a, a lasting effect on on your final product. And we've learned that. Honestly, we've learned that kind of the hard way when we first got the canner and figuring it out. We were, you know, completely new to, to this and or to canning. And we had batches that wound up in you know, like 200s and, and 300s. And we didn't know that until when we invested in a proper DO meter Two, we started having our beer tested. Cause like this tastes great. And a week later, you're like, this is not, we're getting oxygen in there. Where is it coming from? Um, so if there's any advice I can offer any smaller brewery, it is yeah, a DO meter is a huge, but worth it investment. They're not cheap, but if you could swing it, uh, that is, the number one thing I would recommend getting if you're packaging bottles or cans, you know, it's definitely a piece. And especially now as you know, the, the cost of canning lines comes down and you know, you can find a single head American canning or wild goose, you know, for 20,000 bucks. And, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're canning, um, you know, but while that seems like a really reasonable cost for small breweries, the cost of recalling a beer one, because it has gotten you know shattered and oxidized and your customers aren't happy with it the cost of that is so much more expensive uh you know than even your capital expenditure of of buying this canning line and so yeah. you know as, as you get into it figuring out that entire system testing it before you ever try to sell something um can be incredibly incredibly important uh and it's something that even some of the best breweries that i've you know had beer from have all had to dial in you know, there, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's not, there's no shame in having to do that, but just put the work in before you start selling that kind of thing, because, um, you know, upset consumers who are disappointed by your beer are even more costly to you than, uh, than any of this equipment. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we had to learn, like, I mean, that was one, one thing we absolutely happened to us. Um, we were doing a hazy years ago and one of the, the CO2 lines in the back of the canner, the there's like a compression fitting and it had a crack in it and we didn't notice it. So we went through the, the canning run and I mean, we, we had some pretty badly oxidized beer. This was before we had the meter or any of that stuff. 
um, which is also, it's dumb. It, we, if you're going to get a canning line, get the DO meter at the same time you get the canning line. Um, we did, we made that mistake and then it's like, why, what are we doing? Because exactly what you just said, and then you got a massive headache on your hand with trying to get that beer back and making your customers, uh, you know, making them whole and making them right for spending money to get an oxidized beer. Um, so yeah, it, it's a lot of put, like you said, put in the work, learn your canner, um, back back and forth you know and and we we have several upgrades to our canner that we put in place just to knock off do where we can we switch from a traditional can rinse system to using a ionized air rinser so you know that's just it's not like that water you're using de-aerated water then it's fine but any sort of we can get five less parts per billion somewhere on the sure, line. Sure, We would do it, and there are certain right any remnant water droplets in your rinser. Yeah, like our you know, canner, could potentially add oxygen. Had, sure, we had a weird just design in the canner where one of the the air valves for the compressor that where you connect to the canner, like the exhaust was damn near over where the cans filled. So like what, like this doesn't make sense. So we rerouted that the under so just any sort of draft any and we're this is not a counter pressure filler so it's uh you know we we have to be very cognizant about crosswinds draft we don't can with our bay doors fully open to in the summer we have to open one or else it gets too hot but just to keep crosswinds down like all these weird things that you might not think about so yeah how much is is wind gonna affect a canner if you're foaming over and stuff and like it really does so you can get 20 30 parts per billion plus pickup just from shutting a drafty door you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like just so yeah put in the time it uh it will treat you right in, in having happy customers and well more shelf stable beer um which is you know that's yeah uh, that's what you want. Unless you want to do it this year in Nevada way and just put some live yeast in there and uh, you yeah, know, you can it, do it uh, that way too. Let us scour yeah. your stuff out too. Yeah. Um, well, we've talked a whole bunch about hoppy beers, but I feel like we should talk about uh, you know some uh, some stouts also before we get out of here. Obviously, you know, you know, I'd love your fat pug uh, oatmeal stout. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, you know that kind of stout category. You know, honestly, you're in you're in Chicago. It gets cold in the winters. Stouts are great beers. You know, there's plenty of fans for that kind of stuff style um you know but you play in that stout spectrum and everything from kind of drinkable sessionable stouts way up into you know full-on barrel-aged pastry stouts and mm -hmm. uh you know i did we did just get some of those from you oh, a couple yeah. days ago i think it was on friday because uh because we have uh, beers coming in for our stout issue right now how um, many cal like do you guys just not eat during those days to make up the calorie difference <laughs> <from pastry? laughs> like, you we uh we sample in very small amounts, you know, yeah. but talk to me about your approach on this, um, you know, to, first to like, you know, kind of constructing sessionable stouts and, uh, you know, how you build the kind of flavor and body in a, in a very light stout. So, um, fat pug was, like I said, that was our second, second, uh, production beer. Um, and we had one, we really liked just, five six percent stouts um it's always had a, a place in my heart for whether you know whatever the style of stout is but that kind of uh abv range um and we were a huge fan of uh left hand uh what is it god she's uh, nitro milk stout nitro milk stout yeah what I, I was thinking of all right never mind but yeah so the <laughs> left hand nitro milk stout 
And uh, we noticed that, honestly, there was not really anyone making them in, in Chicago. And they were almost the only game in town for that style. And like, why, why isn't anyone making them here? Um, we, I feel like our accounts would love to have a locally made milk stout. We offered it in both nitro and CO2. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration for it. Um, and then we went through a, a ton of iterations and learning how, how you mentioned to get body into those beers without making them overly heavy because at the end of the day it's a five and a half percent beer you want to it should drink you know more full than than a five and a half percent american pale or something like that but it also doesn't need to be so thick that you're you know weighed down by one beer so we went through a ton of different just adjuncts for that and percentages and i mean oats uh touch of wheat and um small amount of lactose that was before lactose became such a a high percentage predominant focus in a lot of these pastry beers um it's a small percentage just to round out the body and add a little bit of smoothness creaminess um that with how, the oats, sm- how small is small do you remember percentage wise lactose yeah let me do, uh, I know the exact, uh, I'll, I'll do some quick math here. So you're talking under 5%. Um, yeah. so for like, you know, whereas we're doing, you know, the pastry stouts, it's where lactose is used. It's a lot more, quite a bit more, um, there's half a bag, 27 and a half pounds per turn for fat pug which is not a whole lot but it's enough to to really just round it out it's almost like the the white wheat idea in the (laughs) the pails i was talking about you want just something to kind of meld things together add a touch of of backbone there and and body and without being overboard um and we used to use all sorts of different roasted malts in there trying to really dial in a huge flavor profile in a in a more drinkable stout and it just took some batches but we're, we're happy with the way it it wound up and um, what is the yeah what's the rest yeah. of the malt look like in that for, you say Posner malt for fat pug yeah that's actually one of one of the the beers that still does not use pilsner malt <laughs> even though even though um we switch pretty much everything right. using uh, Pilsner, uh, we use pale. So it's, whereas like two row, it, it does have a difference for Pilsner malt. Obviously it does, but in our opinion, the effects are, are less so than using something like a, a pale malt. So, um, we use raw pale, which is more almost like we get almost like an English pale malt based note out of it. Um, it's a little bit darker in color has a little bit more substance to it. So that forms the base. And then we use just a, a blend of different, I mean, I'll just, we got pale chocolate in there, Carafa three, um, the dehusk version, um, roasted barley, uh, shit, what else is in there? And then a small amount of an English crystal, like a 75, 80 lava bond mm. crystal. 
Um, and then shit, I almost forgot Munich. Uh, we have Munich in there. So, <laughs> so there's still, a lot, yeah, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of, a fair amount of grain in there, uh, right. varieties for a, such a small beer, but they all, um, in such a small beer, I feel like they all have more profound effects. You know, they're not outweighed by giant pastry style. You're obviously can get sweetness up front by whatever right. you're else you're doing to this is. You still have, I mean, you taste there and, and let the beer warm up and taste it at different temperatures. You can taste a lot of those contributions in Fat Pug. And it's, you know, it's a low ABV beer and it's, yeah, it's, it's very flavorful. So building that kind of spectrum of flavors, you know, that, that start with those kind of, you know, sweeter biscuity, biscuity barley notes and then kind of move through these caramel ranges um, you know, without landing in any one of those spots because it you know, kind of stretches across that spectrum out into the kind of, you know, roasty, uh, you know, uh, coffee-ish malt kind of character out there. Um, you know, but that yeah. kind of, that kind of spectrum and hitting those, those different frequencies along the way, uh, tends to build this kind of, you know, broader, fuller idea of body in it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I because I love music metaphors and I will always uh, revert back to that if I ever ever can. Um, but that's you know when we've been tasting these and thinking about them you know over the last year that uh, you know that was the kind of the piece like what you know what, what is it that's giving us this note right here you know that's not stretching into the kind of deeper darker space but it's also you know supporting it and kind of creating a bridge from the lightest malt flavors into those darker malt flavors and again, kind of spreading, you know, carrying you along through that range seems to be uh, you know, the key on that smaller. Yeah. And I would elements. say keep, keep the percentages of those, I guess, specialty grains, all of them. I mean, you don't need to go crazy with them. Right. You'd be surprised at how much a couple percentage of roasted barley roll really add depth to the beer without being, you know, cause you don't want it to be, you want you don't want it to be so roasty where it almost comes off as acrid or or sure you know, sure kind of like I don't know just burnt for for lack of a better description. Right. You want it to that to amplify all the other flavors in there. So small percentages of each kind of play off each other really well, um, especially in such light beers because it's easy to go overboard with you know that the heavily roasted grains right. and then. Then to me, all you're tasting is you get that quote unquote roast character, which is, sure, you know, it's sure. fine, but it, you want to taste, you want to taste some, some coffee notes, some chocolate notes, some, you know, some almost raisiny dark notes in there. And it's easy to go over the top with that sure. by a percentage or two. And you don't need a lot to, to get all those into the beer. Are there um, any specific heavily roasted malts that you find, um, you know, produce a more pleasant character, you know, across your stouts? Yeah, we've really been happy with Midnight Wheat from Greece um, yeah. lately. Uh, that is, I'd say by far, we use a lot of Carafa 3 um, traditionally in our stouts. But in the last year or so, we've been moving a lot of those what would be Carafa additions or just supplementing those with midnight wheat and Carafa has the husk removes a special one and it's supposed to be a smoother kind of note and it is but for our for our flavor profiles um, and our taste buds midnight wheat delivers a lot more toward that just providing this awesome dark roasted note without being burnt you know it's it's like sure actual dark chocolate dark notes 
that play really well in stout. So I can see us continuing to kind of, as we go back and if we retweak recipes, replacing a lot of the Karaf additions with midnight wheat or supplementing, you know? Sure. Sure. If I think about it in like color temperature, you know, those, that, that uh, midnight weed ends up with like a warm, soft white color temperature where, uh, you know, some of the other, uh, heavily roasted barleys can give you a more like cool daylight tone. And so it, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel quite as, you know, comforting. It's, it's a little more, you know, precise, uh, uh, which especially as you get up in the ABV level, um, you know, may not exactly be the goal for that kind of beer. But, um, yeah, well, let's zoom out for a minute. Um, you know, as we wrap up here for Maplewood, you know, as a business, um, what's, uh, what success look like for you all? What, uh, what do you hope to achieve or have you already achieved it? Um, if not, (laughs) how will you know that you've achieved that? The initial goal was honestly was getting to, 10,000 barrels and we we did that in a few years which is kind of still by minds blown that we were able to to grow in 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 such a competitive marketplace um but now the the end goal is we're we've been looking at several properties um to try and build out a, a proper production facility like i said um we did not have a budget when we opened this place. We yeah. made it work. It works. It works well, but it it's you know it, it we didn't have the the budget to to lay things out probably how they should have from the start. Um, and that's just the way it was. But now that we're we've continued to grow and um, we have sustained distribution and we have a whole you know we're in several states. Um, it's time to build out the production facility that kind of we always wanted. So that is our number one priority for this upcoming year, at least to, to get that going and hopefully be able to produce beer out of there by mid next year, um, which is a little ambitious, but at some point next year, I'll consider, consider it um, within our, our timeframe goal. Um, so that's it. Grow, uh, you know, finally can order our, sweet brew house and have everything done the way we want it done um and just continue to grow a little bit i don't think any of us here have delusions of the hundred thousand two hundred thousand barrel brewery anymore i think that's just becoming there's so many breweries and there's a whole mess of of headaches that come with growth to that size um we want to become a more so a regional brewery you know we we're kind of in that level you mentioned earlier um and just really hone in on that comfortable kind of mid-range of production where we're making a, a good clip of beer but also not so much beer where you know you're like essentially just giant giant manufacturing at that point and um we want to be, be flexible we want to have batches where we can do a small batch of something fun like we've been doing and and not have a brew house that's such that oh we're gonna do this really weird style but hey you got 400 barrels of it to deal with like go sell it type of thing um and i think the range we're looking at is in like the 50 to 60 barrel brew house range which we could run a little lower higher and do smaller releases stay nimble evolve with the market um as well as put out 
you know, a lot of product for our distribution partners. Sure, sure. Well, sounds like a, a fun approach, uh, focusing on the classics as well as uh, some of these more creative kinds of expressions that you do. Um, but we've definitely appreciated uh, tasting your thoughtful approach to all of these kinds of things across that spectrum. Um, G&D chillers are the craftsmen who know that good enough just won't cut it. Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation. Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first. Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today. Let SS Brewtech outfit your brew house and run smooth and safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button. Hey, pro brewers, consider our new all-access pro subscriptions that combine the magazine's exclusive online content and more. Adam, if people want to learn more about Maplewood, and uh, where do they find you? Maplewoodbrew.com. That's it. We have, uh, you know, all our social links are on there, too. It's, I think, all except for Twitter. It's just at Maplewood Brew. Twitter is Maplewood Beer. Um, we're still trying to get the brew because there's, like, a defunct, <laughs> there's like a dead account from, like, you know, 10, 10 years ago, and it's not active. There's nothing on it. And I don't know. We're, we're, we'll get it back someday. But just maplewoodbrew.com. You'll find all the all the good good stuff on, on there and links to whatever you may want to check out. For sure. For sure. Well, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. It's been, uh, been fun to talk to you uh, about how you guys brew. Hey, thanks for having, having us, having me. And uh, we'll look forward to sending you guys some more beers to taste hopefully making the episodes you got to make the cut (laughs) (laughs) for sure for sure well uh, yeah cheers see ya this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew 